happy anniversary to all dreamers, optimists, and junior Tomorrownauts. Welcome to the Tomorrowland Times podcast, an unofficial home for fans of Disney's 2015 Tomorrowland movie, which was released in theaters seven years ago today. To celebrate, I'll be joined by a key contributor to the movie, the legendary storyboard artist Mark Vina. His credits stretch back nearly 30 years, having worked on such films as Rush Hour, Twilight, The Chronicles of Narnia, Oz the Great and Powerful, and James Mangold's Logan. He's collaborated with some of the industry's most celebrated directors, including Mike Nichols, Robert Redford, Sam Raimi, John Favreau, and of course, Brad Bird. Mark, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, it's my pleasure to be here, Nick. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Now, what was the first that you remember hearing about Tomorrowland as a project, and how did you get involved with it? Wow. Well, you know, as you know, the Disney on a new project, especially one of this magnitude, is pretty secretive. Right. Um, and my recollection is it it uh, dropped in my lap with a with a cold call from the studio. Uh, <laughs> I had done several Disney projects before that, and they require you sign an NDA, and you, you you can't even mention the name of the project. I think, in fact, we were. Um, 1952. 1952 was, and yeah. that was, I had no idea what that <laughs> pertained to. I had no clue. I just, Tomorrowland, the only thing, background I knew was about the ride at Disneyland. And the rest was that I discovered along the, along my path after saying yes. So. Do you remember the first sort of ask that they came to you with? Was there already designs being done or was this literally just based on the script? Well, we were brought on, the storyboard guys were brought on fairly early. Uh, you know, Brad is, is a big believer in storyboards, and he wanted to get his arms around this massive project, you know, visually, and kind of work some of the themes. We did already have an art department up and running. Scott Chambliss was the uh, production designer who I considered to be one of the best in the business. Absolutely, yeah. Building a, building a world, and I'm happy to call him a friend, too. I don't get to see him very often as... <laughs> Most of, most of the people we work with in the film industry, there's skips of years between right. relationships, but they had already done some really amazing key frame work, mm. concept work. So the world that we were storyboarding generally was already built and being built as we arrived onto the project. Some of the designs I've seen of yours, the storyboards look like shot for shot exactly how they ended up in the movie. And then some of them are very much glimpses into the Tomorrowland that never was. Can you think of any of your favorite little bits that did not end up in the film? <laughs> well, let's see. There, you know, it, it's such a process. Um, and I, 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 uh, Many of the listeners may not understand exactly what we do. It's a very organic process. We're trying to hone in the director's vision. You know, he had certain ideas about how he would like to see a scene play out and then other areas where he was very open to input. Um, one area that was the blast from the past, the toy store, mm. which was mm -hmm. kind of a neat, that was the two couple that, uh, right. the two couples that were trying to find that, you know, trying to get that pin from Casey and, you know, they turned out to be animatronic or uh, robots. There was a scene, I believe it, it, did make it in the movie that we really worked hard was the aftermath of that, the explosion, mm -hmm. you know, the confrontation with the local police, um, 
And we worked that pretty hard. We had, I'm guessing there was about six different variations of that sequence of how that would all unfold. I mean, that was only, I'm not quite sure the, the film time on that. It was probably just a few minutes. The iterations that we went through to try to get that to work, it, it was, it, there was quite a few that we did. And, and it actually, I, I felt that scene did work. Most all the scenes in the movie worked, how they were boarded. I, I think that it's probably my only criticism would be just how it was, you know, finally fit together, you know, in those different sections. And digging into that scene in particular, that it's a you're right, it's a very short scene in the movie. We don't spend a lot of time with those local cops, but it's it is very clearly one of those scenes where it's like so economical. You've got that head that they bring out, and yeah. then the way that it bounces, and just establishing kind of the Terminator esque precision of those animatronics, where he kind of stamps down on the head. When you see it, it's like, oh, there's Brad Bird coming from his animation world. It's yeah. so finely tuned, you know. There's a precision to that scene. Yeah, that exactly. And we would meet, you know, of course, we would have story meetings every week with Brad. Um, he was doing some work up in San Francisco. Um, you know, that's where he lives. He lives in the Bay Area, but he would always come in every week uh, towards the end of the week. And we'd have full on story sessions with him. And and we would put all our stuff up on the wall, all our board sequences, and we would walk him through what we were doing. And then he would go, you know, of course, back and fine tune it. But yeah, an amazing mind to be able to grasp what worked, what didn't work in his in those sessions. Now, I know that there were different story artists working on this project at different phases. So in the time period that you were working on it, who, what other storyboard artists were you collaborating with? Oh, boy. Well, my office mate, of course, was Dave Lowry, who I consider to be, you know, I owe Dave a lot, actually. He, he really helped me get into the business. Uh, we both went to Long Beach State and went through the uh, illustration program there. Oh wow! Yeah, which was a which is still a very fine program for uh, film art mm. uh, people that want to you know work in the industry. Um, Dave, I just he was a master. Uh, I used to always butt in and want to sit in his story sessions with Brad, and <laughs> uh, it was always a treat because I I considered them both to be masters master storytellers. So I have a lot of positive things to say about Dave Lowry. Yeah. So in those early days, what was the division like? Were you guys taking, you take these scenes, I'll take these scenes, or was it more just kind of a free-for-all? Yeah, I mean, it was. we, we had a coordinator, and uh, they would decide kind of what, what scene, you know, we would work on. Some scenes, like the, the whole Blast from the Past sequence, you know, inside the shop was a team effort, really was a team effort. We, we would divide like the ending scene, the middle scene inside the shop. I know that I was like, one of the funny little stories is I, I was working on a section inside the shop, not the whole scene, but a small little section of it. I remember one day, I believe it was Jeff Chernoff, one of the producers came over and told me to draw in, go ahead and draw in some Star Wars stuff on the walls. And I, <laughs> and I you know, I turned around to him and I, I said, Star Wars, isn't that, that's Lucas. Aren't we going to get into some difficulty, right? <laughs> and then, of course, you know, uh, what was it? A month and a half later, we found out about the merger. So it was kind of funny. I, I, I guess I should have gone out and bought stock in, uh, <laughs> in Lucasfilm. But uh, I just thought that was kind of a funny occurrence so i did put you know i put star wars stuff in the in the uh, keyframe art and it was it was just uh just kind of an interesting little side note uh, some of the things that come across and made it into the film and it made it into the film that's right they went ahead they knew that that was 
going to happen. And the Star Wars uh, toys and imaging was very, very important in that scene. So it was kind of fun. One of the biggest curiosities for fans of this movie in terms of what we haven't seen or we've only seen glimpses of is a sequence that you, you boarded all the way through, which was the boat sequence underneath Small World. So I wonder if you can talk through that, which is such a fascination for people because we got to see the animation that they were going to use in that space. They released that officially. But in terms of the boy going through it physically and making it not just a video, making it dimensional, if you can speak to some of that sequence. Yeah, uh, obviously, I spent a great deal of time on that. That was, I believe, the very first sequence I was tasked to work on. Always the title sequence or the beginning, first act is absolutely vital. In film because that's what uh, ropes kind of ropes your audience into the storyline. We did a scout of the ride at Disney, which happened to be closed down at the time we did the scout. So we were able to walk, basically walk through. Oh, wow. And so I was able to get the lay of the land exactly, took a lot of pictures. I mean, there's even, there, there's art panels uh, that are in the ride that that still have uh, Walt's original writing on the back of them. You know, they're all numbered and because they were used at the World's Fair. Some of those panels are still there. Yeah, so that, that's something you don't normally see. So, you know, I got to see that, which was fascinating. And you'll find that this film was really linked to the historical aspects of, they really did a lot of work on the backstory and promotion early on, kind of creating a buzz for the film that led back to that World's Fair, which is shown in the movie, which is a section I did also work on where he goes on the bus. But oh wow, where Frank goes, you know, he arrives in a bus at the World's Fair and goes in, you know, to the contest. But we walked the, the ride. We, I don't recall that we did much discussion on story because I think that Brad was, he was focused with his uh, production designer on, you know, various angles he was going to be shooting, what he would want to see in the scene. And so it was, I guess it was just more of a, a, a brief run through about what, what this ride looks like, that what we want it, we want to mimic, it, you know, it, and then we were going to create like a trap door or some secret way for it to, you know, for Frank to enter this kind of launch area for people that were invited that had the pin. The first part we had where he was hit with a beam of some kind that activated the pin. Uh, there was a little, <laughs> there was a little lever, or a little um, a door that swung over that took his boat and shifted him into a different uh, down a different passageway, and it went dark. And then he actually literally fell. There were clamps that came up and clamped the boat, and it fell through a hole and brought us to this lower level where the elevator is. And so the elevator scene it takes part. But I think in the movie, it's been a little time since I saw it, but I believe in the movie, he's, he goes down a ramp now. I'm, I'm not quite positive, but I think that's what it is. It is a ramp, yeah. We worked on that a lot to try to get the beats right. And then, of course, the whole elevator ride getting us to, you know, going through that, that dimensional shift. That, that was all stuff. So I, I worked on for the moment he was being chased to getting into the ride and then going down that chute and going up into the elevator to, to, I think, to that very first moment. And then that's where I had to leave it as much as I wanted to go on. And so much of that is in the film. The one bit that didn't necessarily make it was where it sort of underneath the ride becomes a second ride where he learns about the history of the Secret Society and Plus Ultra. I don't know if any of those ideas stuck with you. What do you remember of that? Yes, that's, well, thank you for reminding me. Yes, that was... 
that was kind of part of the preamble uh, for the picture. And I understand why they did it. And I think it worked within the storyboard frame that, you know, there's multitude reasons of why sometimes these scenes don't survive. You know, there's budgeting issues. You have to make compromises. You can't have a four hour feature film. I, I wasn't in the room when the decision was made to, to ax that part, but I thought that it was kind of a creative way in that Disney-esque fashion to introduce the audience to what the background was without including too much exposition, subtitle-y stuff. It's, it's right on that dividing line. You, know, you don't want to over-talk you know, what the background is. You want the audience to experience, but it was something that Frank was going through and he, had, he was just a kid. He didn't know what this was all about. So this was a way that just kind of a vehicle to get it to get him, you know, to, to whet his appetite for what was to come. I, I'm not quite sure why they cut it, but they they cut that and they introduced a different type of, you know, beginning that may or may not be successful. I, I happen to think it was it was not successful to do the you know the video interview. But that, that's a different subject. So that was something that was introduced during the reshoots, which Brad and Damon and Jeff had been very open in talking about. Um, yes. And, and figuring out that opening. Were you brought back on dirt to, to board some of the reshoots or were you moved on to something else by then? I think I was on something else. Um, I, I certainly wasn't aware of any of that discussion. I think I found out about that the same time as general public did. I'm trying to think about it. this was 2000. Well, we were doing this movie in 2013 or 14. We were actually in pre-production quite a while ago, almost nine years ago. To fill in a few gaps for you, that sequence you boarded, the, that historical bit, Brad at every point tried to keep it in. During the reshoots, Damon shared with us the last draft that they wrote prior to the reshoots. And even in that version where they had committed, we're going to cut that history stuff. They even then tried to, wire some of it into Clooney's narration where he's like, and then we learned about the history and they even scripted Clooney making a line like, Oh, we don't have time for that. You wow. know, that, that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. And, wow. and then as the movie was being released, Brad is getting on the horn with the distributors and saying, we have the animated sequence as a short film. Could you please attach it to the beginning of the movie? Yeah. And they only got Arclight and the El Capitan to do it because that's a Disney theater, of course. Oh, wow. but, but, you know, even at that 11th hour, the movie's locked. He's still trying to convince, you know, he, I think he had some in the back of his mind. This history is going to be interesting to people. And so now if you pop in the Blu-ray, you can choose whether or not you want to watch the movie with the short or watch the movie without the short. Oh, right. OK. Yeah. Well, I, you know, the thing that it did is it linked up that whole sequence with the Eiffel Tower. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, that was the other thing that it provided. Um, and I'm sure that's what Brad, his attempt was to, to, you know, like I said, I was not privy to those discussions. I wish I was, you know? <laughs> I wish I would have, I would have advocated for, for, for including that stuff. As much as I've read, I've never gotten a, a clear understanding of why they made that decision to go with the interview beginning the exposition. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, that's, it's always dicey. It's always dangerous. I mean, we go Star Wars worked the original Star Wars with the uh, subtitles running. Yeah, that worked in that movie. There's so many forces on a movie this size, right? Um, and I think a lot of it is just they tested that linear opening where it was just young Frank on the farm with his jetpack starting the movie. And I think that there was some concern about 
that actor's performance. Uh, Having talked to Brad and Jeff and Damon about this, I don't like you. I don't know that any of the three of them are completely satisfied with how the opening of the movie goes, uh, but they needed to show the studio forward motion. Essentially, I think everyone was agreeing that the current cut wasn't working. Uh, Now, that being said, floating around on the Internet, though, there is a fan edit of the film that restores the, the linear opening. I, I think I, I think I may have seen that at a certain point. If you watch the film, the film was was definitely structured originally without that opening, and yeah. um, you know you could tell by you know the reveal of Frank when he was older. I I'm one. I'm always been one a storyboard artist that less is more. Absolutely. Um, I I don't like the feeling of being pushed in a storyline like you're getting pushed in the back now. Some of my friends that are have a gaming background like that, right? I'm one. I'm, I'm I guess a little more old fashioned. I don't know. I like to allow the audience to kind of discover these themes and and discover this world through the eyes of a first person narrative, which is Frank as a child. And I, my assumption was always that we were going to go with what we had. We were going to go with Frank young boy and we're discovering this story and the themes and discovering this whole world you know through his eyes and then an impactful moment is when casey comes to frank's house clearly it's going to be the older frank we don't know who it is and the idea of seeing george clooney for the first time yeah having a son over him his total burned out face and then coming away from the sun and seeing it's George Clooney. I just love that impact. I love that intro. Absolutely. And I, that's where you've got this, you know, marvelous actor playing this cynical dark role. I love that, that, that he reached for that. He really kind of went into that dark, you know, cynical, very dark. I mean, the movie generally is, is kind of dark. uh, If you look at what happened to Tomorrowland. I thought Frank was a sounding board and to have him introduced like that would have worked. It's not a role like anything George Clooney has ever played before. No. And uh, the idea of a boy genius who is kicked out of the city of the future and becomes jaded. Yes. That's drama. I mean, th- there's, there's a, there's an inherent drama to that idea. And you're right. Brad shot that like a reveal, the sun behind him. That is shot like a reveal. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I thought was going to be. I thought, you know, I actually did some, I did some of the storyboard work, of the of of uh, what happened inside the house, you know, when the when the guards show up or the the, the yeah. animatronic uh, robots come in to get Casey, and ultimately we want Frank. Obviously, it would have been a great introduction to Clooney's character. Since then, I've you know I've kind of experienced you know, George Clooney's you know his sensibilities as a director and stuff, and I and I'm sure that's what his thought was too. You know, I'm sure they. Made him on offer. He couldn't refuse to do the video opening, but right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that's the, that's all I can think of. <laughs> yeah, they made a creative decision that it was going to be, you know, that this, this is what we're going with and why. So, but I don't know. And he did push back on a few things because there was another going from the end beginning to the ending. There was a new idea for the ending in the reshoots where they wanted him to give essentially a TED talk oh. uh, where he would introduce the world to Tomorrowland. And Clooney just said, "No, i i don't want to I don't want to memorize a TED talk." <laughs> you know, yeah. Like he's he's like, "I like the ending as it is. 
you know, kind of the distribution of the pins, which was another sequence that, that you worked on as yeah, well. I did work on that, yes, which is the end sequence. Um, was that pretty intact from the beginning, this idea of seeing all corners of the world, uh, be, the recruitment? Yeah, you know, that that was probably a scene I, I had a little more free reign on. Um, hmm. I think we were ramping up for production and I got kind of a loose direction. Well, we're going to go to all different parts of the world and we're going to pick up all these uh, specialists in their various fields and we're going to do, they're going to discover a pin and then a bunch of cuts as they reach for the pin and touch the pin and then the, the boom up to the wheat field and the city beyond. We did do story meetings on it after I came up with the original imaging of that sequence. And so we did hone that with Brad. Um, but that one was because I think they were, you know, off on really getting ramped up for production. I was given a little more free reign about to explore that. But yeah, I, it, it led me to believe that, oh, well, they're getting ready for a number two. They're gonna, <laughs> they're, they, I, I mean, obviously, Disney is very, very adept at uh, marketing and, and uh, you know, they're the champions, world champions of marketing. And I'm sure they leave, you know, a movie that they consider possibly being a franchise movie. They want to allow that, you know, to create an ending where they could, if they elect to, to jump off from it. They were They were trying to get a message out without being too preachy. Unfortunately, you know, they, they, I think they failed a little bit at the end with that end sequence. Um, and that's, you know, that's been talked about at nauseum, obviously how, how that, that final 20 minutes went through, but, but it's, I, I find it interesting that the movie kind of went through the fits and starts that the original Disney uh, ride and his expectations of Epcot and all of that seemed to mirror each other. Just interesting. <laughs> from my angle. I want to ask about how you as a storyboard artist interface with some of the other designers who are non-story artists. Like, for example, the evolution of a prop design as important as the pin. Oh. That pin was the most important design. And I know that there was stops and starts in the production where, uh, you know, they had to wait for Clooney. So the production was kind of taking a little hiatus. Um, in your versions of these boards, there's a fascinating alternate design for the pin that has these little aviation wings on it. And yeah. I, I'd love to hear about where that came from. <laughs> well, uh, I just happened to have a very good friend that was, I believe it was Clint Schultz was a designer uh, that, did work on that pin, you know, and he's a very good friend of mine. And I was always popping in and seeing what he was doing. Yeah. Um, and I, that's one of the jobs the storyboard artist does is, um, is, is going around to the, to the various designers, the production designer, especially kind of getting the lay of the land of what they're doing. So we try to project to keep our storyboards updated. That was probably one of 500 different variations that Clint was coming up with <laughs> yeah. through the process of that pin. So the, the pin was very critical. You know, the design oh, yeah. of that pin was critical to the production. And I know that Brad was very much involved in the selection of that. So that's the, the, the thing with the aviator. I have to I have to defer to Clint that uh, <laughs> that was probably one of his designs that he was working at the moment that I was doing doing those storyboards, but that's kind of the life of a storyboard artist. You know, we were just like the thing with the star Wars toys and the, you're constantly updating. Sometimes you don't know the reasons you're updating certain set dressings or even actors that you're drawing in the storyboards are changing. You know, that's just kind of part of it. I don't know how much you've talked about the, the marketing, the kind of the pre buzz for the film, you know, the discovery of the vault and all that. How much were you involved with all that? The 1952 box? Well, I was there when they were doing it. I mean, I was there when they were involved and, and I got to see all the 
all the uh, posts on the internet, social media about this hidden treasure trove of items that had been uncovered at at Disney in the back lot because they were in the process of, you know, re you know, first of all, Disney's really good at preserving their history. Their, their history is absolutely vital to the to the how the company moves forward, how they make judgments about today, what they're doing today and what they do in the future, but it, it, it was it was a plausible story in fact that they were constantly uncovering you know different items different manuscripts things that were hidden away hollywood is great at that you know putting a bunch of stuff from an old movie or something throwing it into a closet a custodial closet in a box and hiding it up and you you find it 50 years later and that's kind of what the whole buzz thing was about was discovering this box this manuscript of walt disney's about Tomorrowland, that it was unfinished and it was one of his greatest disappointments that he wasn't able to create this Epcot Center, the actual thing. He wanted to build that all. And that's all true, historically true. Yeah. And then the the jetpack, they found the jetpack, but that was all, you know, it was loosely <laughs> based on what could happen. But I sure. think that they, that we knew that it was a studio, you know, the studio worked on this to kind of get a buzz. So it was a melding of yeah. lore, reality, and marketing. And it was brilliant because it worked. It's it, something we've talked to Brad and Damon and Jeff about a lot because yeah. I think they tried to um, preserve that fiction for as long as they could. They did. We were hell-bent on keeping that under wraps. As far as I understand it, the reason they wanted to keep it under wraps was because there were still studio executives that thought it was real. A lot of the people outside of the production thought it was real, thought we had uncovered a time capsule. I, I was privy. I actually got to see the box. Oh, wow. I actually lifted the items and I got to hold the various, it's one of the advantages of being a storyboard artist. They wanted, you know, you kind of had to know what all this stuff looked like. So it was, it, it was beautifully done. I have to say that the, the props of the manuscript may have been real. I, they wouldn't, you know, I didn't ask, but I, like I said, it was a, it was a blending. I mean, it was Disney at its best, really. I unfortunately was the, was the person who had to tell Brad later, this was probably around the time the Blu-ray was coming out, that the only reason we knew for a fact the box was fake is because he put a credit in the credits of the movie that said, Plus Ultra logo designed by Brad Bird. <laughs> and so but when that logo is all over the box, it's like, Brad, you gave yourself away there, man. Yeah, Come he on. Did. <laughs> he did. And that I think that's kind of his way to maybe. Yeah. Maybe he wanted to buck the whole marketing thing and, and let leave a clue. <laughs> wink, know. wink, nudge, nudge. I mean, th- that whole process was so fascinating. And even the formation of our site was because of the viral marketing campaign that came out of it, which was not just the 1952 box, but then in 2013, when you all were gearing up to shoot the movie, wrapping up pre-production and getting into actual production, Disney Imagineering at the parks did a whole six-week alternate reality game called The Optimist. Oh, okay. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, it was basically taking the whole story of the box and spreading it out over Los Angeles. Basically, anywhere in L.A. that Walt was known to hang out, they would install a clue that he was part of this secret society from the movie. But you got to remember, this was two and a half years before the movie came out. So this was a really long game in terms of you can't even argue that it was promotion because the movie, they didn't even say it was connected to the movie. It was literally just... 
there's all these weird things happening. This is a game. Come on and play it. And they got thousands of players to come out oh, yeah. and enjoy that. But yeah, all part of the mystique of it. it I don't doubt it. I mean, the, the the buzz that was created by that whole thing was was really remarkable. If if um, I don't know at the time you were aware of all the social media stuff that was coming out about about that box, about the discovery and what it meant. Um, you know, and it's fascinating because we were all working in the old animation building at, at um, Disney. Oh, right, right, right. At Disney Studios at that time. We were, in fact, Walt's old office was right down the hall from where we were working. So That's we great. had, you know, we had the ghost of Walt walking through, uh, <laughs> walking through our production offices. And I don't know, I, you know, I, I have a feeling that he might have, he might have really appreciated that whole thing with the, with the lore as brilliant as he was. and. The implication that he was part of a secret society of geniuses is nothing but flattering for Walt Disney. No, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure would have. He probably was smiling from wherever he is. <laughs> so, just looking, I'm looking through the list just to make sure we don't miss anything of the big sequences you worked on because I know you worked sure. on so much of it. The other big sequence you worked on was kind of an alternate vision. I'm assuming very early of them actually arriving to the run down Tomorrowland, basically called the Hoversphere sequence. Do you remember anything about that Hoversphere? sequence yeah yeah that was our it was a short sequence um it was obviously the journey back to tomorrowland and and frank knows what's there but casey certainly doesn't um frank has tried to tell her what's there but that was her first you know obviously the first meetup with nicks and and um frank of course knows nicks and we had to develop kind of the the transport of how that would in the the logistics of how that would happen um, the reveals coming up from the city. From the distance, the city, we wanted it to look beautiful. And it wasn't until we got into the city that we saw that things weren't beautiful. I think that that was an important theme in the movie. Nick's, Nick's didn't think he was a bad person. Um, right. Nick's thought he was saving, you know, the world ultimately. It's a complex, you know, complex, very complex character. He fought to preserve what he had created, but obviously, absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's obviously a theme there. But the reveal, I think, of the city going into the city and how it unfolded, and we see the dirt and the grime, and the, we don't necessarily see the societal breakdown that happened um, until we land. And that's more of a story thing, how Brad developed that. It was a journey for Casey. Casey seeing what the city had become or what, you know, what her understanding of what it could have been because, she, you know, her first initial tap of the pin was Tomorrowland in its beauty, in all its beauty. And the reality is, is what she, of, of that journey through the hover sphere into the city to see what it had become. So that was kind of her introduction. So that part of it was, was important. It was an important aspect of that part of the film. It's an interesting alternate because the way you're describing it, it's almost like saying thematically from a distance, it looks fine. But once you get closer and you start to see the texture of it, you start to see the the nitty gritty of it. It's a slower burn in terms of that reveal. And so ultimately the version in the movie where they're just smack dab in the middle of what looks like, you know, Space Mountain's been closed for five years, you know, like like the sludge on the building and everything. Right. There was no transition. We were plopped. And I do recall that we did have discussions uh, it may have been right near the end of my period on the film uh, because they picked up and moved, you know, they were, and right. I, I was already, I think, believe I was already lined up for something else. So I couldn't, 
continue anyway. But right at near the end, they switched it. No, we're going to land in the city. And I don't think I actually did the boards for the landing in the city. I'd have to go back and check. That may have been done by a follow-on artist. But I felt that they did. Obviously, you know, the storyboard <laughs> guy, I love that transition. And I yeah. love that discovery yeah. that Casey makes. And I know that's what Brad wanted, initially at least is to have have us experience that transition from the reality or from from what Casey's expectation was to what the reality was. And that's the was the way to do it. It brings up an interesting point, which I'll I'll throw your way as we kind of move into the the lasting legacy of this movie in the conversation. That is one of the key points of interpretation for fans of this film, because obviously, you know, good design is understood, but good art is interpreted. Right. So it's like that's like what is the ambiguity in the story that allows the audience to read into it? And one of the big kind of, you know, Blade Runner esque interpretabilities of this movie is when Casey touches that pin. Is she seeing a commercial of something that never existed or is she seeing an actual city that actually did reach that height? And the movie is kind of clever in not confirming it one way or the other. Do you have a take on that? Did you, when you were working on it, did you have an angle on that? That's a good question. It's a very good question. Um, When I first saw the movie and I saw, you know, what they had decided on with that first touch of the pin. Um, I, my understanding was that was a glimpse into the, into a future of what could be. Mm, mm -hmm. I'm not sure that, that Casey transported herself into this dimension of Tomorrowland by the touch of the pin. It's a little bit addressed in, that she's invisible, right? In right. the recollection of... Or almost like it's a recording, but it's like, you know, right. it's it's sort of vague as to whether or not, is this a concept art for a city or is this filmed in the city? You right. Know? <laughs> the fact that, they, and what led me to believe that this is more of um, a hopeful, altruistic vision of what Tomorrowland could be was those clues that because she was she was invisible to the other people, even though there was, she had perceived interaction. She would turn and see, no, that character was talking to somebody behind me. Right. I'm, right. I'm really just kind of in this, almost a, a virtual reality game that what she's seeing is just an image and not reality, but uh, you're right. He left it ambiguous. I think it's up to the, up to the viewer uh, that they think that this was actually happening or did happen that lends itself to why they did, you know, the, the, the transition into the city and the way the city was taken over by right. darker forces, right? That at one time it was this, but Frank, his journey, his journey as a child, and he ultimately gets removed, he gets kicked out of uh, Tomorrowland, is because of that, that schism between him and Nick's and the vision of what the world is going to... So, yeah, it's... That's it. It's a good question, and it's a good thing to bring up, and it's something I'll think about after our interview because I'm not quite sure. We like to think of this movie as kind of a budding cult classic, and I bring up Blade Runner specifically because it's a film that was hated upon release, yeah. and it has about five different versions of itself. That's the legacy of that, and now it's kind of commonly accepted. And I'm not saying Tomorrowland is on that same trajectory, but in the sense that we as a site hear from people every year, more people every year saying, I don't know how I missed this film. 
in a pandemic world, it almost feels like it is prophetic in a certain way about Nix looking at a machine that can only predict dark futures. We're all just doom scrolling on social media now, seeing dark visions of our present. And it did seem prophetic in that way to have some kind of insight. So what I'm curious about for you, looking back at the legacy of this movie now with the prism of time back on it. Obviously there's all of those structural quibbles everyone can have with, you know, how the movie introed, how the movie came out of it. But when you think back about sort of what this movie is saying about our legacy as a society and about the future, is there anything that has blossomed for you maybe even more than when you worked on the movie in the, in the ensuing years? I mean, certainly there's, there's themes in the movie that are universal I think that, you know, that's one of the things that Disney does very well in all their media platforms and is picking up kind of the general pulse of culture, or the cultural trends. And um, it certainly has lent itself to kind of the political upheaval that's been going on in the last few years for us yeah. and for all over the world, all over the world, really, for, with the pandemic. And you mentioned that yeah. there, there are definitely uh, themes in that movie that almost are, were prophetic where, you know, that you can make connections. And I don't know that, you know, I've, t- I've had friends that have watched, you know, they watch the movie upon release and, you know, they have their own opinions about it. And then they watch it like years later and they, they kind of, you know, that was actually a damn good movie. You know, I, I've actually had friends that are, that are, you know, pretty cynical about that. And, and I think that it is because of that. I think it is because those themes that were captured in that movie really kind of uh, is a mirror to what's happening today and all the struggles in creating that movie whenever you get into a prediction of the future yeah there's there's you you struggle there's different visions you have a you know you have a utopian vision of the way you want things to be uh you have a really dark thing of you know what if a nix like character took over the world and then you kind of have some visions of that are in between that spectrum a reality you know where that those hopeful qualities are there and there's forces that are dark that are always pulling down on that and sometimes we fall in that imperfection in the middle i'm trying to remember we struggled a lot and i'm just talking about the, the story team sure we struggled with themes in the movie a lot the idea of segregating out all the brilliant people in the world to move them off the earth into a planet far away. I mean, an alternate. Yeah. That wasn't necessarily the original vision that Disney wanted. Disney wanted Mm. the brilliant people to come together and have this explosion of science technology uh, that would solve all the world's problems. So we, we discussed that theme a lot and, and those are universal themes. I mean, still today, those are all things in, in, in the greater society that we, you know, always struggle with. I think human will, humans will probably always struggle with those big things. As people continue to respond to the movie, I think it's those dissonances and those conflicts of theme that actually speak to kind of the, the movie having some teeth. And yeah, absolutely. I, from from a science fiction perspective, we live in an age of space opera where there is actually very little science fiction being made. So to have a movie that's asking questions that only science fiction can ask is kind of original. And to have an original movie, you know, obviously under the banner of something that Disney owns, but like 
for all intents and purposes, beat for beat, this is an original movie. And to have the, the gumption to write a script that says, what would happen if your childhood crush never aged and you met them when you were an old man? It's like that. <laughs> it, like nothing but sci-fi can ask, ask that question. Like that is a purely right. science fiction concept. That's right. And, I, you know, we've been critiquing the film, critiquing the story. And that's one of the things that I've got to hand it to Disney. And Disney is very good at this, is being bold, so bold with a with themes like that in a big production movie. They didn't shift it to one of their boutique uh, film labels. Right. They took it on full force. And I'm sure that they knew the pitfalls. I, I can only imagine, you know, yeah. the discussions and, you know, because I know a, a, a number of those Disney executives and, uh, you know, the, the, the high up discussions they had about this film and about the themes, but, but they went ahead anyway with it. Um, they could have snuffed that out very early on because those themes were in existence in the script before we started. And, um, you know, I think Disney overall got it right. They did get it right. The little nips around, you know, the end that, that I think that could have been could have been changed for the better, you know, were small things, and it wasn't the commercial sex, success that they had hoped for. But right. But you're right. I think Nick, you're right about the themes and and where they lead us, and the greater reflection on society as a whole. And that's what film is ultimately, right? That's what film and art is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a reflection of our our cultural trends political that's successful filmmaking and as we move on year after year after year the commercial success becomes ultimately irrelevant to the discussion of the film because eventually everyone because right now i can tell you at the studio it's like the movie doesn't exist and that's great for the fans because that kind of means we own the movie you know it's like we can kind of do whatever we want with it but the idea of eventually everyone, every executive who was burned by the failure of this movie will not be at Disney anymore. And guess what? The next generation won't care that it didn't make money. Look, 28 years later, Tron got a sequel. It's like the, right. the, the legacy of something is really born on, does it have at its heart a compelling idea that no one else has done before? And I can't, I certainly can't think of another movie since Tomorrowland has come out that has tried to head on deal with that stuff in a way that is packaged for families. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, yeah, you can get an adult oriented film, but to have something that says, here's a movie with two young female leads who are all about science and technology. I have heard from families who talk about how inspired their young kids are by both Casey and Athena as characters. Right. So that, that obviously at the end of the day will become more lasting than the current narrative, which is just, wow, that was a huge bomb, you know? And, <laughs> and honestly, it was a bomb only mathematically because of how much it cost. It made over $200 million. Like, you know, like, like it, it, we're dealing with extremely <laughs> high yeah. level numbers here. Right. I'm sure it was, you know, I would, I'm sure commercially it was obviously a disappointment. Um, yeah. Yeah. That part of it. But Nick, don't be surprised that uh, the the second floor of the basement of the old animation building on Disney, that there's not a young director and young writer that are working on a script for a sequel that at some point may or may not be done. Um, Who knows? I I just think that there was in retrospect, there were there were so many things in that movie that we can see uh, as a general theme in life and that Disney at some point may want to build a second chapter on 
uh, maybe not a sequel, maybe a prequel. Who knows? You know, they've got they may, might have two. And it, it might not be a movie. It might be it, a series. It, who knows? It might be a series now with all the streaming and all the advancements that they're that they're making in distribution. It, it, those are the kind of themes there that I could see a, a series coming out on streaming. Uh, so it wouldn't surprise me at all to see in a year or two or a couple of years, whatever it's, you know, seeing a streaming uh, a streaming series on Tomorrowland. There's our headline. Mark Vina confirms Disney working on Tomorrowland. <laughs> Just surmising after 30 years in the business. That, no, uh, no, no. As you've probably surmised, we are not a clickbait organization. <laughs> There's really nothing to clickbait at this point. That's the beauty di- of it. Yeah, those Disney folks are, are very smart. Yeah. <laughs> They're very smart. So we've gotten a little heady here, but I want to end on a fun question. Sure. Which is, did you keep anything from your time on the movie? Any mementos? Oh my goodness! Because I know some of the some of the early pre production folks were given a little black and white rocket pin. I don't know if you were included at that. I did. Yes, I did receive the pin. Um, I'm trying to think if there was anything else physically, because all my art was digital. Oh right, 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 right. When I first started, I, I if you look at the boat ride storyboards. They were actually done on paper. Really? And I enhanced them with Photoshop. So I do have my original boards from, oh, wow. from that from that first iteration of the boat ride. I think after that, that was it was kind of funny because that was that was a film that I kind of totally made the transition to digital art. Oh, uh, interesting. That's it, interesting. Yeah, it was two thousand I was one of the last holdouts. <laughs> it's a movie of milestones though, because I don't know if you're aware, Tomorrowland, first movie with an all four K post pipeline. Oh, was that true? Really? Because they even rendered the effects in 4K, which let me tell you, even today doesn't happen very often. <laughs> uh, wow. No, that's, that's, I did not know that. That's, that's amazing. They well, still haven't released it on 4K. No. So, Mark, I want to thank you so much for joining us and looking back at your time on this movie. Yeah. And uh, it, it, thank you for your contributions to this thing, because as you can see, it's had a lasting impression. And you happen to touch some of the most interesting corners that we didn't get to see. So it's been a real joy talking to you about it. Thank you so much, Nick. It's been a pleasure. Anytime. <laughs>